I have my headphones on. Headphones. Um, headphones. <laughs> we're, I think we're all kind of cracked out. Oh, yeah? How come? I don't know. <laughs> Peter and I are eating these Space Dunk Oreos that have bright blue and pink cream, and they have, like, pop rocks in them or something, <laughs> so they kind of crackle mm. in your mouth. It's like really fucked up. And that's, I think it sounds, it's, yeah, it sounds. That's that's the energy over here where Jeremy and I are at. Yeah. I got it. Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, author of the cult classic book, It Don't Mean a Thing If It Ain't Sad as Fuck, The Guide to Torch Singers of the 20th Century. Wow. That both excites me and infuriates me. Because you don't like profanity? Good. That's, I, I think that's what I was going for. <laughs> Well, it's actually because now we're in competition. Uh-oh. Because oh. I'm co-host Jeremy, and I have also authored a book Interesting. called Don't Speak, a collection of lyrics about saying it ain't so. <laughs> I don't think that's too much of a competition. I think people can buy both books. People only have so much book money each week. They got to pick. That's true. That's true. All right. Well, competition is on. That book's about the No Doubt Weezer tour from the mid-90s, right? <laughs> that is mentioned in it. <laughs> oh, great. Okay. Take my money. Well, ah, one to zero. <laughs> yeah. I don't like profanity. Damn. <laughs> Same. <laughs> well, I'm co-host Peter Cook and... You know, enough of all this silliness with these intros. Let's stick to just the facts, ma'am. Mm. Mm. That doesn't sound very approving. <laughs> Joining us today on I'd Buy That for a Dollar is a regular on the program. Happy to have her back. Uh, music supervisor, DJ, music enthusiast. Welcome back to the program. Honorary co-host Taylor Rowley. Taylor is my name. Yeah, I approved of that Jack Webb joke, by the way. Oh, thank you. <laughs> and thanks for having me back. So what have you brought to us this time, Taylor? What bargain bin classic have you brought for us? <laughs> we are going to talk about Julie London's uh, 1955 record called Julie Is My Name which came out on Liberty Records, and it was her first album. 1955. Yes. This is a big one in my mind. I think when we first started doing the podcast, if I had to make a list of records I thought we would eventually talk about, this would have for sure been on that list. This is a certified thrift store classic that has been really fun to learn more about. I've really only known the record by general reputation and loving the music for a long time, but there's a great story behind it as well. 
Indeed. Indeed I do. Well, let's start chapter one of this story with which song? We're going to hear the first track on the record, which is called Cry Me a River, which was her signature song. The big hit. Side A, track one. best song to ever feature the word plebeian (laughs) a bold claim but i might have to agree with you (laughs) she pulls it off yeah she pulls it off all around on this record it obviously the the thing that jumped to mind for me was peggy lee as far as stuff we've discussed before yeah in that same avenue of smoky torch singing Jeremy, we're supposed to do recommended similar artists at the end of the episode. Oh, crap. Yeah, I have a list, so. (laughs) Redacted. (laughs) Well, it got me thinking about it because this song is sad. And I was like, oh, is this going to be like, is that all there is? The album we covered by Peggy Lee. But it's not. It's a mix of sad and love songs. And then I started going through Julie's catalog to see if there was an all sad one. And I couldn't find one that was all sad. But you could pick out a few of sad songs from each album and make like a stunningly sad double album, I think. I feel like they're all sad because her voice sounds sad. Yeah, it's that smoky whisper that sounds so forlorn. Yeah, it's- Right, and singing really close to the microphone. I actually thought of, are any of you familiar with the Patty Waters Sings album from the the mid-60s? Where the first side of it is more stuff of this nature, and then on the second side, she lets loose into the avant-garde. Freaks out. (laughs) (laughs) 
but that definitely came to mind. And, and because Patty Waters is kind of such a cutting edge artist, I kept thinking that this was going to go into strange jazz territory. And there are a few moments where it, it starts to almost sound like it's going to veer off the rails, but it overall stays pretty much together. Yeah. And there are times on later records where she will occasionally experiment with like a slightly off note here and there to kind of add some tension, but she never went into like full avant-garde experimentation or anything. But this was a bit of a stylistic departure from a lot of her peers and pop jazz vocalists that came before her, that the style that she has of singing very quietly and in a whisper and close to the microphone was really the opposite. Most jazz vocalists learn to be very loud and project and enunciate and fill the room. And Julie coming out with this sparse, small combo, no drums, like whispering into the microphone was a little bit revolutionary to some people and certainly highly influential. Yeah, whenever I listen to this record, I just think about Isabella Rossellini and Blue Velvet. I wouldn't be surprised if Julie London was a, was an inspiration for that. Definitely. Julie definitely had a knack for covering songs and making them completely different uh, as far as the mood of the song. She loved to take songs that were traditionally maybe a little more upbeat and happy and then just slow them down and make them moodier. It's a specialty of hers. She did that treatment to light my fire on her very last album, Yummy, Yummy, Yummy. And it was interesting. I might be jumping ahead, but her voice starts to kind of get sort of weathered towards the end of her. Yeah, she was a... she was a three pack a day smoker. Oh, wow. So I think, uh, yeah. So I think, yeah, um, with every album, it dropped an octave and got more of a, a rasp. But I still really like that record, the last one. Yeah. Yeah, from what I understand, that she quit making music in the late 60s, mostly because she was just really losing a lot of vocal control due to the cigarette habit and also this record her debut album in 1955 she's 29 when this record comes out in a lot of ways it's kind of like a comeback for her in her career but we'll get into that more later oh yeah also i did have an anecdote about crimea river crimea river was originally written for ella fitzgerald to sing in a film called pete kelly's blues which was released in 1955 jack webb of dragnet fame who was her husband at the time. That's uh, Julie London's husband at the time. Yes, Julie London, not Ella Fitzgerald. Uh, Julie London's husband at the time, he persuaded the songwriter to let Julie London sing it for his film, and that is how it became her signature song. The songwriter Arthur Hamilton was also a former high school classmate of Julie London. And boyfriend. Yes. Uh, so this was just meant to be hers. <laughs> yes, and the song that she, and the song was itself was produced by Bobby Troop, who later became her husband. So she was sort of surrounded by a lot of her ex paramours um, throughout her life, and they really helped her career. Yeah, they just couldn't get enough of her. Wow. 
I didn't quite know the 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 tangled web, not no pun intended on Jack Webb, but the tangled web in which this song oh. became hers. Oh, you meant that pun. Well, I, once I Just saw where it was going. It. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, how did you get into Julie London or how did you find her music, Taylor? I was trying to think about that. I'm a big fan of the singer Pam Berry, who is, uh, she sings in a band called Black Tambourine. Oh, yeah. They were like a shoegazy, sort of jangly, shoegazy band. I read an uh, I think an interview with her one time in which she said, talked about her love and obsession with Julia London. And I think I was probably like 19 or something a long time ago. So then I was like, oh, who's that? And I looked her up and I was like, I'm confused because I also felt like it. there was nothing like kind of, I mean, it's pretty straight. You know what I mean? Like there was no surprise really besides her voice just being really nice. Uh, well, there, the production on this album is kind of dreamy at times. There's some effects mm-hmm. and whatnot. Yeah. I, could, I could see that having some shoegaze, some influence on shoegaze music and lo-fi bedroom pop stuff. Sure. I agree now, but at the time I did not when I was younger. But yeah, then throughout the years, I just became um, a fan. I, you know, I, whenever I saw a record of hers in a thrift store, I would buy it. She does a lot of covers. I like covers. So yeah, she's awesome. I don't know how you could flip by her records in the store and be like, and just be like, oh, I don't want to hear that. I like her covers of her records because she... Is super sexy, but she doesn't look particularly happy about it. <laughs> 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 yeah, um, she's kind of frowning, but in a in a pretty way. That that may have been the uh, the quality that allowed her to be kind of discovered uh, in her younger days. I think, we'll, and we'll talk more about how that happened. <laughs> yeah, she is. There's just something very captivating about her. Like you said, she's looking sexy, but also looks very sad. And that kind of mood, I think, translates into the music really well. And I definitely made sense with just what kind of a person Julie was from what I've been able to gather. You know, she was one of the biggest stars in pop music in the 50s and one of the most popular sex symbols of the day. But in interviews, she would often downplay her talents. She would say that she's not much of a singer or like nothing compared to other jazz singers and would say that her album sales have more to do with the artwork than they do the material inside. Yeah, there was just like a kind of a lack of confidence, it would seem, where there was always like a lot of self-criticism and doubt and a lot of sadness going on there as well. But listening back to this record, this is a major talent and this record has appealed to you know generations time and again there's something timeless to this record that people can really latch on to yeah she was from what i know a very private person a very shy and, and introspective person which i think you can definitely get from her music but um she also didn't like to perform in public really i mean she did at nightclubs and cabarets but she didn't want to go on tour she didn't really want to be on tv like uh, perform on tv i think um a reason that she kind of fell i would never say into like obscurity but maybe not on every the tip of any everyone's mind 
after she stopped recording was she was kind of like pretty content to be a sort of suburban stay-at-home mom when she wasn't recording albums. And there was no scandal. There was no tragedy. Yeah, I know at one point she stepped away from her career to focus on her marriage to Jack Webb. And, you know, it was when we'll get into this, but it was when that dissolved that she came back and this her singing career really took off. Uh, and we'll we'll get into the bio some more, but did we have another song we wanted to play before we do that? Yeah, we're going to hear a song called I Should Care. And this is my favorite song on the record. Yeah, this is a good one. Side A, track two, I Should Care. I should care I should go without sleeping I should care I should go Around weeping Strangely enough I sleep well Except for a dream Or two But then I count my Sheep well Funny how she to sleep Pretty quickly upon listening to this album in its entirety for the first time a, a while back, you know, of course, initially you notice Julie London's voice, but I was soon drawn to learning who that was on the guitar throughout this album, and it's Barney Kessel. <laughs> and it, it's phenomenal. It's like the second star. If you, you know, if at any point you want to just listen to and only focus on the guitar, it's still a very engaging listen then. Yeah, I love how clean and simple the guitar tone is, but very pretty chord fragments and, yeah, good stuff. You are certainly not the first or only people to appreciate the guitar work of Barney Kessel on this record. He was definitely 
a star for some people and even more so because of this album this record sold over three million copies so by the fact that barney is on this and such a prominent player you know one of only three players two instruments on this record he kind of instantly became one of the most influential jazz guitarists of all time like so many people wanted to get that barney kessel sound after this record came out and we're just imitating his licks and yeah i i read that george harrison said that barney kessel is the best guitar player in this world or any world yeah hard to argue well yeah have you heard guitar players Uh, in other worlds (laughs) i haven't (laughs) you just said that because you don't like the beatles (laughs) i didn't this has nothing to do (laughs) i i have heard uh guitar players in other worlds the name is david allen from gong okay that can't that can't be from how does he compare to barney kessel in your mind (laughs) there's a there's a showdown i never imagined david allen (laughs) from gong versus barney kessel (laughs) celebrity death match yeah i love that song i feel like she's it's very late night it reminds me of sometimes of having insomnia and just staying up late candle burning and listening to that record sounds like they're in your living room even when you're playing it in your living room they sound like they're there um maybe it's i don't know it's very intimate yeah i I saw a few sources in different reviews talk about how there were some jazz singers that wanted to give the feeling of singing to like a packed concert hall. And then there's some jazz singers that would try and give you that more like small lounge or like dive bar kind of vibe. But Julie London had this whole other thing where it really sounded like she was singing to just you in an empty room. Well, and she had an album called at home that she literally did record in her living room. Mm hmm. Oh, wow. The original home recording artist uh, yeah. even oh, before yeah. our stevie moore <laughs> it's like i don't i don't know if she's the first no. actually <laughs> no <I'm sure. laughs> I, I yeah i should probably stick to just the facts ma'am oh yeah. two times well uh, speaking of facts since we mentioned barney kessel we might as well also mention the only other player on the record real quick ray leatherwood who was a jazz veteran. Both of these guys were jazz veterans by the time of recording, but Ray had been playing in prominent big band jazz groups since the late 1930s. And by the 1950s, he was primarily working as a studio musician with jazz and pop singers. And he's on the bass, right? He is the upright bassist on this record. And we should also mention real quick that Barney Kessel is a official member of the Wrecking Crew and has played on over a thousand sessions, plus the many albums he's recorded as a band leader. Yeah, I tried to go through and see what other albums we've featured that he's appeared on, and the only one I could say for certain was the Beach Boys Today. I feel like he's come up before. So our listeners, we're going to leave it up to you, listeners, our devoted listeners. Go through and find where else Barney Kessel has appeared and email us at idbythatpodcast at gmail.com. But before you do that, I will mention that he played on the Dinah Washington record, Unforgettable, from 1961 that we talked about in season one. Okay. It was like there has to be at least one more. But yeah, he doesn't have a ton of credits that would be dollar bin records, even though he played on 
so many sessions. But yeah, he did. Uh, he worked with Dinah Washington on a few records. I know I'm not the only one whose mind can't let go the name Ray Leatherwood. Is that a real? Is that a stage <laughs> name or? Uh, good question. I don't think it's a stage name, but I'm not positive. I'm not seeing that on his Wikipedia as it being anything than just his name. Wow. He's truly born for, for that role. Leatherwood is his name. Yeah. <laughs> I keep making album title jokes. Okay. My, 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 my brain wanted to go dolomite on it and fucking up motherfuckers is his game. <laughs> <laughs> I don't Wait, like swearing. Who hates profanity? <laughs> Leatherwood is his name. Sounds like a like a western to me. Yeah, <laughs> hell bent for Leatherwood. Yeah. <laughs> Taylor, do you want to tell us about the bio of Julie London? Where did yes. she come from? Who was she? So Julie London was born as Gail Peck. So Julie London is her stage name in Santa Rosa, California. Her parents were vaudevillians. Um, they were a song and dance team. They had her in 1926. When she was three years old, they moved to San Bernardino, California, which is near where I was born. And she made her professional singing debut on her parents' radio program. By the time she was 14, the, the family had moved to Hollywood, and she began to sing in local nightclubs around L.A., she was discovered by a talent agent while she was working at a, as an elevator operator in Hollywood at a uh, at a clothing store. Yeah, yeah. That's why I was. It, it said something that like the this talent agent was just taken with Julie's features. Yeah, she's like unbelievably gorgeous. I in the the BBC documentary that I watched, they had some interviews with a few different friends of hers from the time period, and they all said that basically, if Julie London went walking out on the sidewalk, she was going to get like talked to by a talent scout or something like people would just always come up to her and be like, can I give you a job? You're so beautiful. <laughs> like, it was just, that right. was the life she lived. Yeah. So she, uh, this talent agent signed her and at this uh, same store or during that same gig, she met a photographer for Esquire who shot photographs of her that appeared in the magazine, um, November, 1943 issue. And that kind of kickstarted her career as a pinup girl during World War II, which you can kind of see on um, especially some of her later records, like Calendar Girl. So yeah, and then after that, uh, she started acting in films while she was still in high school. She used the name Julie London for the first time in her first film in 1944. She was in a bunch of westerns throughout that decade. Eventually, by the time the 40s were over she was dropped from her warner brothers contract which was fine by her because at, by that time she had married jack webb who was you know famously in dragnet an actor and producer and she wanted to focus on her marriage to him and raising their two daughters she was actually offered a contract with universal studios in 1950 and she turned it down because she wanted to focus on her family so it's not necessarily that she was dropped. She was actually kind of a rising star and was like transitioning from being a B movie actress into potentially more of a leading actress. Right. Yeah. So by 1954, she and Jack Webb had divorced. She pretty much immediately started or resumed her acting career. And the following year, she was discovered singing in a jazz club 
by a record producer named Simon Waronker. And he was introduced to her by her future husband, Bobby Troop, who is also a jazz pianist and actor. She signed to Waronker's label, Liberty Records, and released Julia's Her Name, which is the album we're talking about, in December 1955. In less than a year, she went from you know, completely unknown as far as a singer to suddenly one of the most popular singers of the decade. What, what I had learned about that concert where Simon Waronker discovered her, that was uh, set up by her future husband, Bobby Troop, who you had mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, he was actually the one that really convinced her to try and go for a singing career. He was just enthralled by her voice and her talents. And she was as we've said, had a lot of stage fright and did not want to pursue this kind of a career, but he kind of pushed her into it, set up this big concert, invited producers to come and watch her. And I guess at that show, she was so nervous. She was like shaking and visibly nervous on stage and forgetting lyrics. But even aside from all that, the talent was just so obvious that people were like, this is a star, an incredible singer. Yeah. I mean, that voice Plus her looks, I mean, it's just gold. Yeah. Yes. So this record uh, was recorded or released in December 1963. No, why did I say that? Late December 1965. <laughs> <laughs> That's- December, oh my God. December 1955. <laughs> um, and it sold like a million records after its release. And I think... Shawnee me no better. She was like the like top billboard artist for the following three years, I think. Yeah, that was kind of the thing with this record is it had just a lot of staying power and it pretty much instantly was getting put into a lot of soundtracks. So it sold big right away and then just continued to sell for the next few years and went on to sell past three million copies at one point. Yeah, it was famously used, uh, the song Cry Me a River, her signature song, was famously used in the film uh, The Girl Can't Help It. Yeah, the, the Jane Mansfield film. Yeah, she appears as herself as sort of like a, a vision, and she's singing in it, and it's so cool. Uh, if you haven't seen it, the clip is on YouTube, and uh, it's a great movie. Yeah, and that was uh, a rock and roll film, correct? Yes. Yeah, that, that's one thing I wanted to kind of contextualize real quick with this album. So 1955 is kind of an important time for rock and roll coming into the mainstream. It's one year before Elvis took off. It's the same year as some like early rock hits like Bill Haley's Rock Around the Clock, Chuck Berry's Maybelline, Fats Domino, Ain't That a Shame, etc. And... Julie had this interesting appeal that seemed to be able to work for older generations, fans of big band music, but also appealed to younger rock and roll fans at a time when these changes in the music industry were like ruining the careers of many singers and big band artists almost overnight. But because she had this very emotive and very personal sound and a small combo instead of a big band, it just seemed to work for everybody. Yeah, and she definitely had this the same set kind of sex appeal that like rock and roll um, artists also had. So I think that was another reason, definitely, why she was appealing to younger people. Yeah, both her stage presence and the artwork. Mm-hmm. So after that first record, she recorded thirty-one more albums 
her, the final one being recorded in 19, or released in 1969. Throughout the 50s, she continued acting as, uh, in films, mostly in westerns, and appeared on a lot of TV shows in the 60s. Her second husband, Bobby Troop, who, you know, is the one who encouraged her to begin singing in the first place, they appeared as panelists on game shows like Hollywood Squares throughout the 70s. They also starred together on a TV show called Emergency with an exclamation point. Emergency! As a nurse and a doctor. And that was on for like four or five seasons. And that show was, I believe, produced by Jack Webb, who was her ex-husband. So they kind of I really liked how they all stayed very friendly and um, were in her life for, or he was in her life, you know, 30 years after they got divorced. In her corner. Seems uncommon. <laughs> yeah, helped each other's careers. And yeah, so in 1977, Emergency was canceled. And she came back on for a couple of the TV movie specials that followed. But by 1979, she was like, I'm done. I don't want to do TV anymore. And she retired. And the last musical recording that she made was for the soundtrack to a film called Sharky's Machine in 1981, starring Burt Reynolds. And that was her version of My Funny Valentine. That may not be the first time that Sharky's Machine has come up on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen it, though. Have you seen it, Taylor? I have not. Wow. But now I kind of want to, to see how a Julie London song and could work in a Burt Reynolds film. Yeah, I'm curious too. Let's all pause and go watch it and come back and talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You really got to start putting some metadata in these these episodes so that you can cross-reference very quickly. True. We'll get an intern on that. Sharky's yeah, Sharky's machine needs to be its own tag. <laughs> yeah, so then you know, she was didn't you know she didn't do any more acting or, or recording until i mean actually for the rest of her life and she passed away a year after her husband bobby troop passed away um in 1990 after complications of a stroke and also lung cancer which she had she had got because she was a three pack a day smoker as you can probably hear and she was 74 i believe Man, she produced just such an amazing body of work over a relatively short amount of time. Like her entire professional career was a little over 35 years. Her entire recording career, those 31 albums she made, that was over the span of just 13 years. Jeez. It's putting in work. Yeah. Yeah. I can see yeah. I can see by why the late 70s she was like, I'm done, I'm good. Yeah, she'd done enough. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, we should probably get to another selection before we move any further along here. What did we have in mind? Uh, we are going to hear I'm Glad There Is You, with, which is the fourth song on the record. Perfect. I'm Glad There Is You, side A, track four. In this world of ordinary people Extraordinary people I'm glad there is you In the 
this world of overrated pleasures and underrated treasures. I'm glad there is you. I live to love, I'd love to live with you beside me. This world's so new, I muddle through with you to guide me. That song I'm reading was written by Jimmy Dorsey, who Ray Leatherwood also played with. The bassist on this record. Correct. You know, I kind of get bored with standards. Like, you know, if I pick up a record, I'm like, oh, this is all just the same standards you hear on every single record. But I feel like when she sings them, I mean, they still sound the same, like, I know with the songs, but they just don't even, they are so personal to her, if that makes any sense. Like, I feel like they're, they don't even sound like standards anymore. Yeah, and in fact, a singer having a very unique and personal interpretation of a song was an issue that was close to Julie London's heart. She actually testified before the U.S. Senate in 1967 arguing to extend copyright payments to performers, specifically performers who are doing an interpretation or cover of a song. Her argument was that interpretations can be just as individualistic as the original writer's role in creating the song. And as an example, in front of the Senate, she performed an ultra sexy version of the Mickey Mouse Club <laughs> theme song. Shut <laughs> up. Wow. Just to prove a point. Incredible. That is amazing. So add activist to her resume. Yeah, a brief activist. Cool. Apparently she was notably apolitical most of the time, and that was like one of the few instances where she championed a cause. So she didn't come back in the 1980s and sit next to Frank Zappa and battle the PMRC. I mean, I wish. <laughs> she didn't sing We Are the World. Yeah. I wanted to mention real quick one other thing from the BBC documentary. They had a photo on there of Julie London's like little bio card when she was entering into film stardom and trying to make some connections. So under the basic personal info on the card, name, address, etc., there was some personal questions. Julie answered that her ambition was to be a star. Her hobbies were sleeping. Her sports were swimming, and her preferred entertainment was movies a la Orson Welles. Ooh. A la. Yeah. Ooh, la la. I just, I loved that, the, the question of where your hobbies plural, and her answer was sleeping, singular. <laughs> but she still wants to be a star. That's kind of the yeah. conflicting mood of Julie London right there from the beginning. She wants yeah. to yeah. stay at home, but also be a star. Strong high school yearbook vibes there. Yeah, it's a mood for sure. <laughs> yeah, she does sound like she just woke 
up most of the time. <laughs> True. <laughs> yeah, she once said, kind of reflecting on her place in show business, you got to have the ego for it, and I never really did. Yeah, yeah. there seems to be some, some inner conflict going on with Julie, but the results speak for themselves. She <laughs> produced so much work, as you said, in such a, a short time. Yeah, and I think her vocal style, you can hear the influence in a lot of modern singers as well. You know, like uh, Billie Eilish is a fan, uh, Lana mm-hmm. Del Rey. Yeah, it's a, there's a timeless quality to it, as I said. Yeah, I instantly thought of Billie Eilish with all the very yeah. soft, almost spoken stuff, especially on some of her early hits. Mm-hmm. Well, since we're talking about similar artists... This might be a good bridge into asking Sean for some recommended albums. Wow, what timing. Let's do that. I've got five different recommendations for everyone. The first two came out the same year as this record. First recommendation, Helen Merrill, her self-titled album from 1955. She's another jazz vocalist from this time period. It was just making some absolutely incredible music. Uh, Not as much of a name as Julie London anymore, but well worth digging into. Second recommendation, an artist that we have featured, but not an album that we have featured. This is the recommendation is Frank Sinatra in the wee small hours of the morning. Also from 1955. Never heard of him either. Yeah. Well, (laughs) you should check it out. He's pretty good. (laughs) Cool. Pretty cool. It's just a classic, sad lounge singer, you know, a torch singer kind of vibe, if you will. And Julie did the title track from that album at one point. Makes sense. That's the right vibe. Third recommendation previously featured Dinah Washington, Unforgettable from 1961, featuring the guitar work of Barney Kessel. There we go. Yeah. And then uh, recommending Morgana King, another sad lounge singer that we have done an episode on. I'm recommending her 1965 album, It's a Quiet Thing. A little bit closer to the style of this, even though it's, you know, 10 years later. But Morgana King, one of the greats. And finally, previously featured record, Peggy Lee, Is That All There Is, from 1969. Jeremy's Ep of the Year last year. Mm Mm-hmm. If you haven't heard it yet, listeners, go back. We love our sad lounge singers here on I'd Buy That for a Dollar. I've got a few, if you don't mind. Please. Okay, well, uh, not specific albums, but just other artists, you know, to throw out there that are in the same vein. Well, Julie London and her mother, before Julie London was ever a singer, they were huge Billie Holiday fans. I think Billie Holiday definitely was a huge influence on her. When I was listening to this record over the uh, yesterday, I was also thinking about I mean, it's a man, but Chet Baker's song uh, albums where he sings remind me a lot of her. Yeah, definitely. And I don't know. I also, like, later on, I think Dusty Springfield also kind of has, like, is sort of carrying the torch from her or whatever, picking up the torch. The torch song torch? Um, Yeah, torch song torch. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it, there's even some of the sadly recently departed Melanie and some of her songs on her albums. She goes for more of a jazz lounge singer thing, like Some Say I Got Devil. 
that I believe we featured from the Gather Me album. Melanie could go that route too. Yeah. Well, as we said, this was an incredibly influential and popular record. So if you heard a singer doing a Julie London type thing post-1955, they were probably intentionally doing a Julie London type thing. (laughs) You heard it here first. We're the first to make this observation. (laughs) (laughs) This is a hill that I will die on. Well, very good. Thank you both, Sean and Taylor. There's there's a lot of uh, this type of music out in the the bargain bin. We we should just acknowledge that this album is getting harder to find in the bargain bin than it used to be. Uh, word has gotten out as of this episode, so <laughs> it's got the eyed by that bump. Maybe a little in advance of this episode. I, I've heard that now. If you find this out there, you you you're likely going to be paying more between 10 and $20. Is that, would you say that's about accurate, Sean? Yeah, especially if you're looking at an original 50s pressing. There's a lot of reissues that you can find for cheaper. And you can still find this for a dollar if people don't really know what they're doing. But as we've said before, if you go to a record store that knows what they're doing, yeah, 10 to 20 or sometimes more for a really nice copy. But keep digging through the thrift stores. It's out there. They've made millions of this record. Yeah, it was re-released. It was originally in mono in the 1950s, and it was re-released as a stereo version in, in, I believe, 1960. And I'm sure it's been pressed many times over. Yeah, and it's like been continually rediscovered by different groups of people. It continues, like Julie London continues to have some of her songs featured in TV shows and movies. It was on three separate episodes of The Marvelous Miss Maisel, as well as many other things, but also this record has become very prized by audiophiles. Guys who are spending tens of thousands of dollars on stereo systems will also track down pristine hot stamper editions of first pressings of this Julie London record because the sound of it is just so incredible. If you can't find this one, there's 31 other records you can (laughs) (laughs) release that you can try to find. Yeah. Very cool. Well, Taylor, Before we introduce our final selection, would you like to remind the listeners what they can check out that you're up to out there in music land? Yeah, um, I have a radio show called The Windmills of Your Mind. It's on NTS Radio every other Thursday at noon Pacific time, and it's archived afterwards uh, on my website and on NTS's website. And I would say that if you enjoy Julie London's music, you would enjoy my radio show. That's a fair assessment as someone who has listened to it and is not involved in the creation of it. <laughs> yeah, I tend to like lean towards things that are kind of soft and pretty and sad and have like a haunting spookiness. Yeah, a, a little weird, but not too weird. Yeah, exactly. Just a little off. Um, and I like female singers a lot. Yeah, Jeremy has said this before when you've promoted the program, but I, I'd say I usually know one or I feel like, (laughs) I feel like well-versed if I know two of the artists that you've featured on (laughs) any given episode, but it's, it's a great place for discovery uh, of music. Taylor's done the work and now you can just discover a whole bunch by tuning into the windmills of your mind. Pro tip listeners. Thank you. Yeah. (laughs) And what was the final selection from this record by julie london that we wanted to feature to go out on 
we are going to go out on one of my favorite kind of deeper cuts from the album. We're going to flip over to side B and hear the song No Moon at All. Yeah, I saw this one has been performed by quite a few people. It was originally performed by Doris Day in 1947. And Anita O'Day, one of my favorite vocalists, did a version the year after this Julie London record in 1956. But it just goes, the list goes on and on and on of people who've performed this up to Seth MacFarlane in 2022. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> what? <laughs> that makes sense, though. He's all about that lounge stuff. You heard me right, the family guy guy. Yeah, yeah, that does make sense, actually. <laughs> so, all right. Well, Taylor, as always, it's great having you on. It's been a minute since we had you on, so glad to have you back. I, we're, we're just gonna, I'm gonna make this official now. We look forward to talking to you in a few months. Pentangle basket of light. Oh, it's on the record. <laughs> oh my gosh, yeah. you guys are gonna love it. Two out of three ain't bad. Uh, I, my my prediction is that Jeremy will not love it though. Yeah. There's been so many times throughout our lives where I'm like, well, I know this is like the kind of thing Jeremy doesn't like, but it's so good. He'll just like it. And then I play it for him. And he's like, <laughs> I hate this. What did you expect? <laughs> yep. I look forward to Jeremy being surprised. Ooh. So, so does Taylor. Oh. <laughs> I'm going to change his mind. Yeah. All right. Well, very good. Uh, we're going to get out of here. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in to I'd Buy That for a Dollar. My name is Peter Cook. My name is Jeremy Ruggles. I'm Sean Hartman. I'm Taylor Rowley. No moon at all. What a night. Even light and bugs have dimmed their light. Stars have disappeared from sight And there's no moon at all Don't make a sound, it's so dark Even Fido is afraid to bark What a perfect chance to park And there's no moon at all If you need atmosphere Tonight is right and bright moonlight might interfere No moon at all up above This is nothing like they told us of Just to think we fell in love And there's no moon at all If you need